Okaeri, and welcome to the very first episode of the Yonsei, the Nikkei podcast. I'm Yoko from Nikkei Rising, and for the next nine weeks, as part of the Tadaima virtual pilgrimage series, we'll be bringing you roundtable discussions with young adults involved in and around the Japanese American community to honor our community's history and explore its implications today. Hi, I'm Matt, also with Nikkei Rising. Together with Yoko, we'll be co-hosting today's episode titled The American Dream. With our guests, we'll look at the immigration and settlement of the Japanese American community and other immigrant communities to understand what these experiences mean to those who have lived it and their descendants. Welcome again to the Yonsei. Before introducing our guests, we wanted to share a little bit about our own family's immigration stories. The Japanese half of my family immigrated to the U.S. between 1904 and 1922. Both of my sets of great-grandparents are from a little town called Susami in Wakayama-ken, which I've actually visited a couple times. My grandmother's father came to California as a teenager with his father and worked at the canneries on Terminal Island before going back to Japan to accompany his new bride, my great-grandmother, on her journey to the U.S. They later settled in L.A. and rented cleaners. My grandfather's father came to Southern California with his brother and eventually sent for a picture bride from his hometown in Wakayama. My great-grandmother made the journey alone when she was 16 years old to marry a man she had never met. Her and my great-grandfather lived across the border in Mexicali, Mexico, before living in Calexico, California, where they ran a pool hall, and then eventually moving north to Guadalupe, California. My great-great-uncle actually settled permanently in Mexico and married a Mexican woman. To prepare for today's episode, I actually talked to my grandma yesterday, and I learned something insane about my family's immigration story. Apparently, when my great-grandfather, Morishita, went to the port to meet his picture bride, he was so nervous that he asked his friend, another young Issei, who was from the same little town in Wakayama, to come with him. His friend witnessed the couple's very first meeting, but they later lost touch, moving to different parts of the state and being sent to different camps. After the war in Chicago, my grandparents met by chance. When my grandma introduced my grandpa to her dad, he was delighted to find out that it was his old friend's son, the very friend who had accompanied him to the port all those years ago. Little did my great-grandfather Yasuda know, the couple whose meeting he was witnessing back in 1916 were the eventual parents of the boy his future daughter would marry. I love discovering little stories like this about my family's immigration journey. The other half of my family were Norwegian and Ukrainian homesteaders in North Dakota, who immigrated around the same time as my Japanese-American ancestors. The contrast between my white immigrant family, who were given free farmland, and my Nikkei immigrant family, who were not even allowed to own property, is really telling. My family also had several different immigration stories. My Japanese side comes originally from Kumamoto, far south in Japan on the island of Kyushu. My great-great-grandfather, Daihachi, and great-great-grandmother, Shiga, left in 1899 in hopes of making money to send back to their families. For three years, they worked as pineapple farmers in Hawaii, And when their contract was up, they moved to the mainland near Salinas in Northern California. Here they worked on a farm helping to grow strawberries, onions, and peppers while raising the family of their own. All the while, they sent money back to their home in hopes of paying off their debts. Their son, Takeo, was sent back to Japan for schooling and returned to the U.S. in the 1920s, where he got married and had a family of his own. This allowed Daihachi and Shiga to return to Japan in the 1930s, and Takeo took over the family's farm lease. My Chinese side comes from a small village in Guangdong called Wing On Li, and immigrated in 1911. My great-grandfather, Wing F. Ong, was 14 years old when he left and almost wasn't allowed to enter the United States because of the restrictions of the Chinese Exclusion Act that was still in place. 
but he was allowed in eventually and ended up moving to Arizona, where he started his own family and eventually graduated from college. And finally, my Jewish ancestors left the Russian and German empires in the 1900, escaping religious persecution and settled in the slums of New York alongside many other Jewish immigrants. While appearing white, they still suffered discrimination and anti-Semitism because of their Jewish heritage, even as they moved away from New York out west to Colorado and California, showing that neither side of my family was safe from discrimination and showing just how complex the immigration story really is. Now it's time to introduce our first guest, Johnny Narita. Johnny is a Yonsei artist and student activist from Seattle, planning to major in interaction design at the University of Washington. Thank you for joining us, Johnny. Hey, thanks for having me. Our next guest is Sarah Rafai, a first-generation Chinese-Iranian-American artist and organizer from Tacoma, Washington, who got involved with the Japanese-American community through the Minidoka pilgrimage. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So first, we'd like to get a sense of each of your family's immigration stories. So I think we'll start with Johnny. Johnny, can you tell us a little bit about what you know about your, your family's journey to the U.S.? Yeah, for most of my life, I wasn't super knowledgeable about my, my great-grandparents' experiences. But lately, um, I've been asking my family a bit more and like uncovering more of that, that backstory. Um, so my mom's dad, dad, dad's dad uh, was 17 when he moved from, uh, I believe it was Fukuoka Ken Prefecture in Japan, uh, to Seattle. This was in 1907. Um, so his plan was to, to earn money and eventually go back to Japan with the money that he made in America. But obviously this didn't end up happening. Um, his wife was a picture bride, which means that basically... Uh, people from back in Tokyo sent photos of women to the the men in America, and that's that's how they got married. They they never met each other before that they got before they like got married. Um, and yeah, she was she ended up being a barber. Uh, she owned the business, um, and and yeah. Uh, my dad or my mom's my great grandfather he owned a grocery store he was a tailor and he was a janitor um on my dad's side his story was a little differently uh my dad's dad dad my my dad's dad's dad um was the son of a charcoal business owner in nagoya so he was basically a a rich kid's son but he had disagreements with his father, so he wanted to make his own way in the United States. So his name was Masataro, um, and he was a Christian, which was a little unusual in his community. Uh, his first wife died, um, and then he returned to Japan, found another girl, married her, and she was actually also um, like pretty, pretty well-to-do herself. She had three brothers, who all graduated from Tokyo University, which was the, the most oh, wow. esteemed university in Japan at the time. But like, I just found out today that all three of them died from Spanish flu in the 1917. Oh my which goodness. Which is weirdly tragic and it like kind of oh. parallels what's going on in like the in the twenties nowadays. Anyway, so they returned back to the United States and he joined the California farming community. Um, he was like a big leader in the community. And my dad said, my dad never met him, 
but he said from the stories that he he learned about him he was like a great orator he could like give a speech at the the drop of a hat um and he was always like in a three-piece suit um but yeah is there anything else that you wanted me to cover specifically i could go a little further like into the the pre-war days but i don't know if you guys want that is there anything else you know about what their journey was like or maybe why they decided to come i know that you said one of them came with the intent of going back to japan do you know for any of the others um yeah so he he wanted yeah he wanted to make a better life for himself um, like I said, for my, on my, my dad's side, he just wanted to, to do his own thing. Actually, um, his dad, the reason why he like dissociated himself from him is like, his dad was like a philanderer. So I guess he disagreed with that. <laughs> so he like left and was like, I'm out, I'm going to America. Bye. <laughs> well, that's one way to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. I was, I was talking to my grandma yesterday and I asked her if she knew why her parents had decided to immigrate. And it was pretty much the same thing, not the philandering, but pretty much the same <laughs> idea of like, of like wanting to create not only a better life for themselves, but also for the future generations. So as a descendant that, that really hits home. Um, I think now we should, ask Syre a little bit. Do you know much about, um, I know that you are Chinese and Iranian. Um, do you know much about either side of your family's history and their immigration stories and your own immigration story? Yeah. So, um, my mom was born in Hong Kong. Um, her family originally was from the Guangzhou area of China before they moved to Hong Kong. She came to the United States by herself when she was 13. Her grandparents on her mother's side were already living in the States um, in Pittsburgh. They owned a laundromat. And so it was a drastic change for her living in the busy apartments in, in Hong Kong and moving to um, a fairly humid, cramped laundromat in Pittsburgh. Um my dad came to the United States during a time when a lot of Iranian families wanted to send their kids to the United States for education. And so um, him being the oldest of four boys was sent to the U.S. to live with a family in Oakland. So his initial interaction and experience in the United States is pretty interesting. Um, his take was he thought the majority of folks in the United States uh, were black just living in Oakland. Um, but they paid another Iranian family for him, um, him to have a high school education. Um, and he stayed with them for a little bit, but um, didn't really like the family. He was housed there with another Iranian boy. Um, and so after high school, he wanted to kind of get as far away from that family as possible. And so both of my parents on their journey ended up in Oregon for jobs. And that's how they met. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So for both of you, we wanted to ask you about not only what your family's immigration stories are, but also um, how you see them today, like how they've impacted you, kind of how you think about them. And um, we also wanted to ask you what you would say to your um, immigrant ancestors. What, what would you want them to know about how their journey has affected you? 
I can go. Um, as for how it's affected me, I mean, like, it's affected me in literally every way possible. Like, the decisions they made, the choices they they had to make, uh, like, by coming here, by, by working so hard, um, not just not just like starting from grand zero, going to a completely different place where they didn't know anybody. Um, but like after the war, after they got out of the camps, starting from grand zero all over again. Um, like my mom's mom, my, my mom's mom's, no, my mom's mom, she, uh, after the war, she, she had to live in uh, the Japanese language school at Hunt Hotel for like three to five years just so that they could get themselves back on their feet. Um, so it's not, so it basically set them back an entire generation and yeah, no, I wouldn't be where I am today, like able to get education, able to like afford the things that I'm able to afford today, like without what they did, um, all the way back then. Yeah. That's, that's so similar to how I feel about my Issei ancestors, like we, we really owe the whole world to them. Um, Syre, do you have anything to say about how, how you see your family story today? Sure. I think each of my family members who came to the United States came for very different reasons. My, my mother's grandparents um, came through Ellis Island, or at least my, um, my mom's grandfather initially. Um, you know, and then my mom joining them later, my dad coming for education and with every intention to return to Iran, but then the Iranian revolution happened and he couldn't return up until maybe the year 2000. So I think understanding their stories and the complexity of just all of the different immigrant stories, there, there is no one single story to encapsulate why people come to the United States. And that's, I think, always been really intriguing to me to understand forced migration along with all of these other nuances as to why folks come to the United States. And it's definitely impacted me, too. I think our family is different from a lot of families, um, kind of being a mixed mixed cultures, mixed identities. Um, we, do, we do have a family saying that we're not cousins. We had an experience going to a restaurant in Centralia um, where... The, the restaurant is called Cousins and everyone going through the front door was greeted by the waitress to see folks and saying, oh, welcome cousins, welcome cousins. And when our family walked in, we were not met with the same um, same greeting. And so we have this family saying, you know, we'll, we'll never be cousins no matter where we move. We're kind of these like nomadic people that don't really fit in and our own identities and the way that we're perceived by people in this country and even in other places um, can be really confusing and I think probably resonates with a lot of folks who now are having kind of mixed identity families um, that these experiences of, of migration um, change the way that people see each other. Yeah, sorry, I really resonate a lot with what you said, also coming from uh, a mixed race family with very different immigration stories and very different reasons for uh, immigrating to the United States. Um, and, and learning about the different cultures and, and how those interplay with one another now um, is a big question, I think, for a lot of families and a lot of folks now that come from families like that. Um, and I think we mentioned earlier that 
uh, your experience with the Japanese American community began with the Minidoka pilgrimage. So kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, what that experience is like and what you learned and how that experience uh, sort of informed your own story of your family's immigration history. Yeah, the, the Minidoka pilgrimage this past summer was really, really insightful in participating as a scholarship recipient. I was able to see the process of planning on the back end with various committee meetings leading up to the pilgrimage and then participating as a volunteer throughout the process. Um, and afterwards, it was really interesting to, and really beautiful too, I think I was recognizing as sitting in these planning meetings that there aren't a lot of opportunities for intergenerational dialogue. And the Minidoka pilgrimage is a wonderful space for that. Um, there's so, so many stories that I think are trying to be recorded and, and every moment of the pilgrimage, even if it's very extensive, very long days, some, it's a, one of those experiences that you just don't want to miss out because you don't know um, if you'll be able to hear that story again, if you'll be able to meet some of the, the folks who have survived these really terrible experiences um, in the camps. Um, so I think, and I'm super grateful for the relationships that I was able to make with the other volunteers um, and speakers there as well. Um, my, my initial interest, you know, came from an invitation of one of the, the coordinators. And I was really thinking too, you know, this is not a lot of, of history in this country that I'm was educated about in school. And a lot of my organizing work outside of my day job it relates to um, immigrant refugee um, advocacy around the detention center in Tacoma where I live. And so I thought, you know, this is, this histories are paralleling each other right now. And, um, and we're really grateful for the opportunity to participate. I think some things that really struck me during the, the time is that I didn't really fully, I didn't fully understand that also during this process, um, Japanese people, Japanese Americans really had to choose which side they were going to be on, right? They had to choose either allegiance to Japan, allegiance to the United States, and that more than 5,000 Japanese people denounced their U.S. citizenship um, in hopes to, to leave these camps. Um, and even when President Truman restored citizenship, you know, there were still rifts in families that were divided based on those decisions, rifts in communities that, you know, might still very well exist today based on something that, that essentially the government was um, mandating. Um, another thing that really surprised me too was almost in a way that folks were interned almost as bargaining chips. The, you know, Japanese government was holding U.S. soldiers that were captured. And, and I think the United States saw that ho holding um, Japanese people in the United States could hopefully be a trade off um, and to trade some of those people. Um, however, the Japanese government didn't want Japanese Americans. And so the United States actually paid the country of Peru to trade Japanese people who are living in Peru with Japan in order to trade kind of U.S. soldiers um, who are being imprisoned in Japan. 
which then led the Peruvian government to take back land and businesses that were once of people of Japanese descent in Peru. And so there's so much, so much more to this history beyond the United States borders that I wasn't aware of. It was really, really disheartening, but really interesting to think about the ways in which these different empires and powers can really manipulate with money and like using people as bargaining chips is really terrifying. Um, but a more lighter note, I, I was really excited to hear more about the, the Issei women who um, were kind of like known as like the iron fisted women crafting demands and doing some internal activism movement building that we don't often hear about in these stories too. So that was more uplifting side, I think, of, of what I learned. Yeah, those Issei yeah, women yeah. were some tough cookies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's part of why the pilgrimages experiences uh, and Japanese American history as a whole is is such an important topic and one that isn't always taught in school because the incarceration experience and, and what happened to the community in World War II was so much more nuanced than the one paragraph or the one page that is often taught about in school. Uh, and I think that's why the pilgrimages end up being a big draw for a lot of folks, um, both inside and outside the community, uh, especially with the parallels that we see today, like you mentioned. Uh, and speaking of those parallels, uh, also wanted to ask what you think that the Nikkei community today can do uh, to stand in solidarity with immigrants and other undocumented communities having that somewhat similar uh, experience in our history. Yeah, definitely. Something I'll add too about the experience at Minidoka is being around people who who know that their loved ones were in Minidoka was just an added like heart-wrenching experience. You know, there are some folks who are really prideful and said, oh, like finding pictures of their their loved ones. I remember someone pointing out the picture of his father who was a firefighter in Minidoka. Um, and also in conversation with, with a grown man who was breaking down in tears because, you know, finally he had this experience to be in this place that he knew his aunts, his um, ancestors were in and being able to show his children this place in, in the hopes that this never happens again. Um, and we were interesting enough in Minidoka right after um, a lot of survivors of Japanese internment camps were, had taken a stand at Fort Sill to demand that that facility that was um, used as a um, Japanese internment camp at one time to not become an immigrant detention center for children. And so we were in, in Idaho, in Minidoka, right after this happened, um, and folks were, were in a place of realizing, you know, history is repeating itself. And we've had immigrant detention for a very long time. ICE is Immigrant Customs Enforcement, or ICE, you know, it's been around for maybe 17 years. It's not too long in our nation's history that this has been happening. But, you know, for folks that live in the Pacific Northwest, the Northwest Detention Center located in a very industrial zone in Tacoma, Washington, hasn't been there for very long, maybe 2014 maybe 2004. Um, and so, you know, what folks can do, I think is really important to, to know their own history, know their own um, migration story for their, their loved ones, their family, 
but also to begin to learn what's happening in their backyard. This facility is the largest in the Northwest. They have a bed capacity of over 1,500 people, and it's in partnership with ICE and a corporation called GeoGroup, which profits off of every bed that they fill every night. And their contract um, ensures that they, they have to have 800 of those beds filled a night um, to maintain their profits. And there's groups like Sue for Solidarity. Um, I organize with a group called La Resistencia, really trying to free immigrants in detention, recognizing, you know, ICE claims this is their best facility, which means a lot of their facilities are far worse, but that no human being should be in a cage and that we, we want to stop the deportations. We want to stop the separations of family from happening. We want to end detention. We want to shut down these facilities. And so right now we're, we're trying to organize to bring awareness, which I think is an important thing to have conversations with people as you learn about these topics. Um, but then there's lots of ways to show up in person. There's ways to contact your officials. And we're having this conversation during a global pandemic. Um, and this facility has been deemed by the courts as non-essential, which means during this whole period of COVID, the facilities should have been shut down. Um, yet operations are running as, as usual and people are still being deported on a weekly basis and being detained on a weekly basis. Um, and so we continue to see, see these groups um, like ICE breaking their own rules, essentially. Um, and so I think there's a lot of ways that people can, can show up and, and apply that kind of community pressure um, on our governance structures, um, on ICE, they have the power to release people, but they are choosing not to. Um, they have the power to provide better medical attention, but they're not. We know that right now there's four people inside of the det detention center in Tacoma with COVID-19. Um, they've been diagnosed, and yet um, we're fairly certain they're not getting the medical attention they need. And so as we see history replicating itself, um, I was really glad to see at the pilgrimage um, survivors of the internment camps speaking up and recognizing that they don't want this history to happen again. Yeah, it's infuriating to hear what's going on in these in these modern day concentration camps. Um, the other day, I was reading an article about how uh, these camps are basically spraying down like the cages, like every couple of like every hour or so with like toxic cleaning medical uh, chemicals, these cleaning chemicals um, in response to COVID-19. Do you know if that's happening at NWDC in Tacoma? I haven't heard specifically um, about in Tacoma, but we know there are folks with um, chronic illness, chronic medical dis um, medical conditions, um, and they're not getting the treatment that they need. So regardless if they are, and I'll add too that the facility is located on a Superfund site. Superfund sites are, are toxic land areas. So really no one should be living there. Um, we've heard of poor water quality in that facility. 
yet no one has tested the water, tested the air as it being located in an industrial zone. Their emergency procedures are to stay in place, right? So if anything were to happen in that area, it's a huge risk of loss of life or injury for all of those people who work there, along with the folks that are detained there that are pretty powerless in that space. Um, oh, what kind so of I don't know specifically. A super Sorry? what kind of site? A super fun site. Um, uh, fun so site? Super fund. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Yeah, so super fun sites are basically land areas that are deemed toxic and unlivable. So history, um, Tacoma's had a history of, you know, arsenic pollution, other things from factories. Um, and that facility is built on one of those sites that has not been thoroughly cleaned or deemed livable. Mm-hmm. And yet there's so many people working and being detained there. I wanted to ask Johnny, so as, as someone who is a descendant of these types of inhumane practices and um, horrible treatment of immigrants in detention, I was wondering how, how that makes you feel to see something like this happen so close to where me and Johnny both live in Seattle and Tacoma is just a short drive away. And we actually got the chance to be part of um, a day of remembrance protest with Sudo for Solidarity at the detention center. So I wanted to ask Johnny about um, how how he feels seeing the same things that happened to his immigrant great grandparents um, being repeated in different ways, but with the same sort of really horrible um, cost to human life. Yeah, honestly, it's just infuriating to see how the United States is just repeating the cycle of, of mistreating and criminalizing immigrants. Um, I mean, this goes back like all the way back in, in like the history of the United States. And just to see that it's still surviving, this tradition is surviving in this, in in the here and now. Um, I would say it's disheartening, but I know that there's people out there who are, are fighting the good fight, like, like Sire, who are organizing and, making their voices heard and letting them know that this type of behavior, this type of mistreatment of, of dehumanizing immigrants, just, it can't continue. It needs to stop. Yeah. What's something that you think most people don't know, don't understand or don't think about, uh, in regards to the immigration experience? Um, what's one thing that you would say most people uh, don't realize about the immigration experience either today or for the Japanese Americans, whoever wants to go first. It's a tough one. <laughs> you can think you can, it's okay. I can go if you want Johnny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like all my comments are downers. So maybe it's better if I go. <laughs> um, I think for me, Um, so prior to attending the Minidoka pilgrimage, I had the opportunity to attend a, um, international assembly of organizers, activists, um, actually in Hong Kong, (laughs) kind of right in between the two major protests we saw this summer. 
um, of like millions of people. So, and a lot of our conversations were actually around U.S. imperialism. And I think that's something that we don't think a lot about of impacting forced migration to the United States is the impact of our military and policing in other countries and the ways that um, the infliction of harm through war, through violence, through trying to occupy land and resources, whether that be corporations, whether that be governance, plays a role in the ways that I think spells into this American dream that's really sugar-coated um, and enforces people to think that, you know, there isn't any other place but this country to go to. And if I go to this country, my life will be better. Not that, and, and the story being shared, you know, is not the reality for most people, that it's a lot more difficult. And, you know, we see on the news and me media perpetuating certain people as being immigrants and not understanding their backstory that often people don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to leave their country, their families. And yet they have gone to so many extremes that they can't, there is no other, other option for them, but to travel by foot, by train, by boat, by plane to, to be, to arrive into this country. And also the false narrative too, that a lot of people are, um, sneaking in when reality, a lot of people stay here after an overdue visa. So there are lots of, of lies that I think our media perpetuates to continue to criminalize our immigrant and refugee population. I'll, I'll add to that. You know, I've had a family member who has been detained in the Northwest detention center in Tacoma. So hearing the stories of Japanese internment, you know, I feel I feel a connection in understanding a little bit of the shame that comes with, with someone being um, incarcerated or detained that our families don't, at least my family doesn't talk about. And so for me to be doing organizing work, I hear the stories of other people and I'm grateful for spaces like the Minidoka pilgrimage where there is now this willingness to share that history because I don't want to ask my loved one and say, Hey, can you tell me about that traumatic experience you had? I don't, that doesn't feel right to me, but to have spaces where we uplift and continue to share that history is so important. When I was looking over my notes that I, I took at the Minidoka pilgrimage, I found a quote by one of the survivors who said, freedom is very fragile. It should never be taken for granted. And we see the slogan of freedom all right now during this time of COVID is that, you know, we should be really, those of us who are quote unquote free, not in cages, can do what we can with the power that we have to continue that pressure to free, free people that shouldn't be in those places at all, that shouldn't be criminalized by our government for essentially the harm that our government is allowing to happen in other places. So I hope folks kind of leave this conversation thinking about what they can do then, and we all have our different assets and talents. You know, Johnny creates art. I do art as well. Art is a way of not only healing for the folks that were inside the Japanese internment camp. It's a way of resistance as a way of, you know, coming back to culture. And I also see art 
and many other ways of being as a way to continue that resistance effort to stop these, stop this history from repeating itself. Yes, I couldn't agree more with your point on, um, on like passing down these stories of immigration and and the trials that immigrants face. Like um, as a Yonse, as someone with Nikkei uh, grandparents, I know how like frustrating it can be almost. Like my grandpa, whenever we would ask him about, hey grandpa, what happened to the camps? We wanna know like, what, what did you do when you were a kid? You know, all of these things. And he would just be like, nope, not gonna talk about it. Nope. And it was, it was, it's actually kind of sad just to not have that many stories about, about what happened back then. And it, it, I know it can be frustrating to not be able to, to get through to them or to hear about our history. Um, but I just want to encourage you to keep on trying. Um, like you don't want to like re-traumatize your grandparents. No, you don't want to like make them like remember painful memories but actually, um, it was a couple of years ago at the Minidoka pilgrimage before I got involved. Uh, it was the year, it was the year uh, that the baseball diamond was uh, opened. They they recreated the baseball diamond uh, in the Minidoka or at at the site of Minidoka, uh, which was baseball was super important to the culture in camp. Um, and my grandpa was a baseball player back then. So that's the thing that like got him to go, you know, and he didn't want to like talk to anybody. He wouldn't tell anybody what his name was because he, he like had all these bad memories of like what the community had, had done to him. But it was, it was baseball that got him to like talk about it. And my sister, she has this video of him uh, like, talking to this park ranger and he his face is just lit up and he's telling the story about how it was like a, a big game and it was like top of the ninth or bottom of the ninth and he hit a home run and it went so far over the wall and she, he was wondering like if she knew how many feet like he hit it like how far the outside wall was because he was so proud of that that story and I guess my point is, is that it might be difficult to like get your, your grandparents or survivors to open up about their experiences, but there are ways that you can like find out these stories from them, like through things like baseball or the things that made it easier for them. Um, like my grandma, she's still alive. Uh, um, like we had a conversation about what food that they had in camps because we were making food one time. Like there's ways that you can, you can talk about these sorts of things. There's ways that you can heal mm -hmm. together and yeah, like pass on these important slices of history. Yeah. I, I, that resonates so much with me. And I think that especially like we're talking about our immigration stories. And for us, Yonsei, most of us didn't get to meet our Issei ancestors. So our last connection kind of to them 
is our Nisei grandparents, if, if we still, if we're still lucky enough to have any, um, yeah, exactly. and, and being able to ask them about their parents, it's kind of, they're the last generation who really, really got to know the Issei generation. Um, so we are even going to start wrapping up. Oh, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh no. Even my mom, uh, she was, I was asking her about, um, what she knew about the Issei generation, her grandparents, uh, for mm-hmm. this interview. And even she said like there was a communication barrier because they spoke, they spoke Japanese mostly. She yeah. spoke English mostly. Yeah. She just kind of had to sit there with like her parents and her grandparents and like talk to them that way. And yeah, I think that's really common. So yeah, my, my mom's a Christian. So she's like, Oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. So I can like ask them all these questions that I never got to ask. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I wanted to add a couple of things before we close. Um, just, I know that we wanted to also include like our host's perspective. So I feel like for me, I really connected to what both of you guys said. I think that, um, what Syra was saying about, um, all the shame that's wrapped up in the immigrant experience today. Um, I think that one misconception that I think about, um, is that people assume that, that you're ashamed that you come from immigrants or that that is not, I don't know, that you feel bad about it in some way. And for me, the main thing I feel about my immigrant ancestors is just like really immense pride um, that they, that they were so strong and did so much. And it was all for me, you know, for their, for their um, descendants. Um, So, yeah. And then the other thing that I think about also is, the fact that because I come from two families that are both immigrants, one side is white, one side is Japanese. Um, and people always assume, or they make the assumption that, that because half of my family is not white, that they must've been like very recent immigrants and that my white side must've come over, I don't know, with the Mayflower. And I'm like, no, you guys, like people immigrate from all over the place at all different times. And white people are not the native people of this land. So um, I think that's always a misconception that I, I try to um, to go against in my conversations with people. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, both of you guys. Um, it was so great to hear your guys' stories and how you have interacted with your family stories, especially from a youth perspective. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for, for being here today just want to add that I like Yoko and Mike Sari having again, that mixed experience and having ancestors from all over the place. It, it really means a lot to, to know those stories and not to be shameful of them, but to be very proud. And I'm extremely proud of all that my ancestors did to, to get me to where I am and to be able to do what I'm doing now and being able to share those stories. So again, thank you both so much uh, for joining us on this first episode of the Yonsei podcast yeah, this was Thank a blast. Thank you so much for. <laughs> um, and to all of our listeners, be sure to join us for next week's episode, uh, the title of which is "Only What You Can Carry," where we're going to look at the years before the war, leading up to the eventual forced removal of the Japanese American community in the wake of Pearl Harbor. Episode two will not be hosted by me and Yoko, but instead will be hosted by Michelle and Hito, who are also part of the Nikkei Rising Committee. To learn more about the history behind today's episode, be sure to visit jampilgrimages.com and click on the Nikkei Rising tab. 
And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nikkei Rising for updates on the Yonsei podcast and other programs from the Nikkei Rising Committee as part of the Tadaima Virtual Pilgrimage Series. The Yonsei podcast is made by Hiro Edeza, Michelle Hecker, Yoko Federenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Wisebly, with music by Michelle Hecker. This has been the Yonsei podcast, and it's been Yonsei. <laughs>